All right, we are back. I wish we had more time to speak with Michael Corda, but he was on a very tight schedule. But I want to mention in our last segment a bit more about uh, the saga of Lawrence as told by Michael Corda. Late in the book, it notes that in 1933, the rights to revolt in the desert had passed into the hands of Alexander Corda, the Hungarian-born producer who had made Britain's first internationally successful film, The Private Life of Henry VIII. This was the first British film ever nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, and its star, Charles Lawton, became the first British actor to win an Academy Award for Best Actor. Noted the author, Alexander Corda was the author's uncle. Zoltan Corda was the middle brother, and the author's father, Vincent Corda, the youngest. Notes Michael Corda, Lawrence rightly feared that Corda was much more likely to actually make the picture than the previous owners of the rights. He went down to London to have it out with Corda, but found to his surprise that the film producer listened to him patiently and sympathetically and appeared to agree. Lawrence later wrote to George Bernard Shaw's wife, Charlotte, I lunched with Alexander Corda, the film king. He was quite unexpectedly sensitive for a king and seemed to understand at once the inconveniences his, his proposed film would set in my path and then ended the discussion by agreeing it should not be attempted without my consent. He will not announce his abandonment, but it will not be done. You can imagine how this gladdens me. Corda would later speak with great fondness of Lawrence and described him as, quote, the nicest man I ever failed to do business with, unquote. Of course, long after uh, Lawrence died in 1935 and political things settled down that were related to the events of World War I, at least settled down a bit, for as we talked about, many of them are still with us, in the 1950s, notes the book, Alexander Corda would sell the film rights to Sam Spiegel, a producer whose taste for the grand film was equal to Corda's, said Michael Corda. He apparently bought the screen rights to Revolt in the Desert after lunch at Annabelle's in, in London. Noted the author, over coffee, brandy, and cigars, he also bought the film rights to The African Queen, which prompted Corda, in a burst of poor judgment, to say, My dear Sam, an old man and an old woman go down an African river in an old boat? You'll go bankrupt! Of course, one mystery does remain after reading this excellent book. I'm, I'm still not clear why it was the French were so adamant to get Syria and Lebanon handed over to them after the war. If any of you experts out there in international relations have some light you can shed on that matter, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I feel fairly certain that some, of, some among you are going to have some insights to share about the Sykes Picot Treaty. Oh, and one bit of uh, errata as regard our previous interview of the, of the last segment. In the restored version of Lawrence of Arabia, contrary to what Mr. Corda said, they have reinstated that scene of the massacre that prompts the uh, take no prisoners scene where they, they go after the Turkish army. Apparently in the original theatrical release that had been cut, it is, it is still to this day, I believe, the longest running film to have won the Best Picture Oscar. Apparently one of the things that had disturbed uh, Lawrence about the possibility of turning Revolt in the Desert into a motion picture was that uh, in typical Hollywood sappy style, there would have to be a love interest for him. He apparently was especially not keen on that idea. It's somewhat curious to note that perhaps he didn't need to have worried about that when they finally did make uh, Lawrence of Arabia in 1962. Uh, it has this odd distinction of being one of the very few pictures out there that has no speaking roles for any female character. And yes, it's true, the, the motion picture is not strictly speaking historically accurate in many aspects, but I think that, uh, I think that's kind of nitpicking. It does certainly capture the feel of, of, uh, of, of that conflict. 
Personally, I don't see how people can object to taking a few liberties with the exact uh, sequence of events uh, unfolding. One of the mottos we live by on this program is, is that sometimes a little bit of imprecision saves you tons of explanation. I think that's true in radio and motion pictures. We did not note um, on last week's show that it would be airing a day before Veterans Day on 11-11-11 this year. But I thought I would quote from an op-ed piece by David Swanson, as repeated in truthout.org. Said Mr. Swanson, believe it or not, November 11th was not made a holiday in order to celebrate war, support troops, or cheer, or cheer the 11th year of occupying Afghanistan. This day was made a holiday in order to celebrate an armistice that ended what was up till that point in 1918, one of the worst things our species had done so far to itself, namely World War I. World War I, then known simply as the World War or the Great War, had been marketed as a war to end war. Celebrating its end was also understood as celebrating the end of all wars. A 10-year campaign was launched in 1918 that, in 1928, created the Kellogg-Briand Pact, legally banning all wars. That treaty is still on the books, which is why war-making is a criminal act and how Nazis came to be prosecuted for it. Noted the piece a little later, the propaganda machinery invented by President Woodrow Wilson and his Committee on Public Information had drawn Americans into the war with exaggerated and fictional tales of German atrocities in Belgium, posters depicting Jesus Christ in khaki sighting down a gun barrel, and promises of selfless devotion to making the world safe for democracy. The extent of the casualties was hidden from the public as much as possible during the course of the war, but by the time it was over, many had learned something of war's reality. And many had come to resent the manipulation of noble emotions that had pulled an independent nation into overseas barbarity. Words that certainly... Uh, ring true today as we contemplate the fact that we have a senseless war continuing in Iraq with no end in sight. Oh, they say they're going to withdraw most combat troops by the end of the year, but uh, anybody out there believe it? Since we're talking about the Middle East today, we need to mention something about what's going on over in Israel. Apparently the Israelis uh, are contemplating an attack on Iran. There have been rumblings about this for weeks in Israel. In fact, last week, Israel conducted major offensive and defensive military drills as reports of a possible future strike on Iran's uranium enrichment facility and related sites continued to mount at home and abroad. This is a quote from the Jerusalem Post. Notes the Post, air raid sirens will ring out today across the greater Tel Aviv area as part of an extensive drill simulating a missile attack. And apparently there are some rumblings that the U.S. and Britain might support Israel if it goes on the warpath against Iran. In the meantime, the U.S. has warned American citizens who take part in efforts to deliver material support or other resources to Gaza that they could face civil and or criminal penalties. The U.S. has officially urged its citizens not to take part in flotillas that challenge Israel's blockade of the Gaza Strip. The week before last, Israel's navy intercepted two small boats carrying around two dozen activists and towed the vessels to a port north of Gaza. This at least is an improvement over the commando raid wherein Israeli forces executed several Turks in their effort to bring relief supplies to Gaza. 
Anyway, we think this idea of allowing Israel to make war on its neighboring uh, countries uh, without penalty uh, needs to get revisited. Of course, the London Guardian has said that Britain is planning to assist a U.S.-Israeli strike on Iran, while the Associated Press has reported that the Gulf states are quietly backing the idea. Writing in Tel Aviv's Haaretz, Yoel Marcus said, Get down from the roof, you crazies! It would be fatal irresponsibility to defy the advice of military experts and subject a million and a half Israelis to retaliatory fire from Iran, from Hezbollah, and closer to home from Hamas and maybe even the Palestinian Authority. We can only pray that Netanyahu is really just making an empty threat in hopes of pressuring the Americans to rally the world against Iran. Speaking of Netanyahu, we meant to mention on last week's program that a bit of conversation between Barack Obama and French President Nicolas Sarkozy caused a bit of a row diplomatically. The two men were heard disparaging Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as a liar. Reportedly, in a private conversation at, uh, at a G20 summit a couple weeks ago in Cannes, Sarkozy said of Netanyahu, I cannot stand him. He's a liar. Obama seemed to agree, saying, you're fed up with him. I have to deal with him every day. Most of the conversation, which the two leaders didn't realize was caught on a microphone, consisted of Obama criticizing Sarkozy for the way France broke with the U.S. by supporting Palestinian membership in UNESCO. There was a report on this program, according to U.S. law, if, uh, if, the, if a U.N. agency funds the Palestinians, then its aid will be cut off by the United States. The Palestinian Authority was allowed to join UNESCO, a U.N. relief agency. Subsequently to this, the U.S. has now said we're not going to fund UNESCO. This all makes good sense, doesn't it? In conjunction with this, it's quite interesting to read the article in Newsweek from the November 7th and 14th issue. It's an article by Rula Jabrial based on an interview with Moshe Dayan's widow. Ruth Dayan is the widow of the legendary Israeli chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces and, of course, key leader in the war for independence back in 1948. In case the name isn't ringing a bell, Moshe Dayan was transformed into a symbol of national strength during the Six-Day War in 1967. Noted the article, 63 years after the founders began to build a democratic, secure, prosperous state, Israel is still struggling. There's no peace deal with the Palestinians. Tensions between Arabs and Israelis grow by the day, and the violence drags on. Under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party, Israel's been racked with political divisions. The government has moved to the right in order to keep the majority in parliament. Said Ruth Diane, we built this country inch by inch and we lost so many lives. We built public and social institutions, schools, factories. What's going on today is awful. They're ruining this country. I'm a proud Israeli. I've lived through every war and endured every moment of suffering, but I never stopped believing in peace. I've lost friends and family members. I'm a peacemaker, but the current Israeli government does not know how to make peace. We move from war to war, and this will never stop. I think Zionism has run its course. She's quoted later in the article saying, My mother spoke Arabic, and we often hosted Palestinians in our home. We lived among them even during wars. At the double wedding of our children, Asi and Yael, in 1967, we invited Israelis, Druze, 
Arabs. It was a wonderful celebration. The article notes the general view in Israel before the UN bid for Palestinian statehood was that by erecting a wall, the government would no longer need to deal with the Palestinian issue. Security would be guaranteed. But it has not ended the war within. Recent Israeli governments have been held hostage by the ultra-Orthodox political parties that dictate the national agenda by demanding large economic subsidies and affordable housing within the settlements in exchange for their parliamentary support. Diane went on to criticize Netanyahu, saying, For Netanyahu, peace is just a word. And the current foreign minister, Avador Lieberman, he's the most terrible man in this country. The way he speaks about our Arabs, our Israeli Arabs, it's unacceptable. I call Lieberman Doberman. How can a man like that represent our country? Noted the author, Diane speaks like a natural-born leader. When I provoked her with a question on whether the security measures are justified by terrorism, she interrupted and said, Oh, please, nothing will stop terrorism except dialogue. Yitzhak Rabin could have achieved peace. He fought terrorism as if there was no negotiations and negotiated as if there was no terrorism. Today, we must apply the two-state solution because we've grown apart and it would be best if everyone took care of their own business. Two-state solution, a good idea, coming from Ruth Diane, widow of the legendary Israeli defense minister. Something to think about. All right, we've got a minute and a half left or so. Let's see if we can't end this by quoting from Hero, the life and legend of Lawrence of Arabia. History has brought Lawrence back into the minds of those who are concerned with events in the Middle East. Not only did Lawrence introduce the Arabs to a new kind of warfare, his determination to give them, as he saw it, an Arab state, and his definition and vision of what that state would be are still at the center of every diplomatic dispute, war, insurrection, and political revolution throughout this vast area. Lawrence cannot be held responsible for the mess in the Middle East any more than he was solely responsible for the Arab revolt, which had already broken out before he arrived in Jeddah. But everyone from General Allen beyond down seemed to agree that the revolt would never have succeeded to the extent it did without his vision and strategy. Lawrence was at least partly responsible for the creation of present-day Iraq, with all of its ethnic and religious contradictions, and Jordan, and he played a substantial role in the creation of Palestine as a separate entity. The British and French division of the immense Turkish Empire that extended north and south from Syria to Yemen and east and west from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, an area from which Lawrence had played a major and admittedly flamboyant role in driving out the Turks, was the primary guilt that Lawrence bore and explains much of his life from 1922 to his death in 1935. As it turned out, the brutal carving up of the Turkish Empire was complicated by the fact that great oil reserves were in the most backward areas on the eastern fringe of the Middle East. These would have the effect of transforming remote desert kingdoms and principalities into rich oil powers, while leaving the more highly developed, better educated, and more populous part of the area, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, impoverished. The book notes that after the peace conference and the creation of Jordan and Iraq, Lawrence, knowing that he'd done his best for the Arabs and that it was not good enough, was broken by the shame and guilt of his own failure. He resigned from the public life and signed up as an airman. A simple enlisted man, not an officer, it should be noted. But Corda concludes, the United States of Arabia was never born, with consequences that we're still facing today. He didn't achieve what he set out to, not completely, but I think we might want to close uh, this show with some words from Lawrence himself, which are precisely the words that Michael Corda uses to close the book. 
Said T.E. Lawrence, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dream with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Looking forward to a, a good book to buy for Christmas, possibly as a gift. I, I certainly would recommend Hero, the life and legend of Lawrence of Arabia. And we hope in the next week or two to be able to sit down with Joanne Herring, she of Charlie Wilson's War, to talk about... Uh, her relief efforts to repair the damage that has been done to Afghanistan, and of course, uh, a lot of other interesting stories from her biography. Diplomacy and Diamonds, My Wars from the Ballroom to the Battlefield. We expect that to be a fascinating chat. Next week, we'll mark our annual Thanksgiving show. We hope we'll have some special items for you. See you then. (laughs) 